Hey there, it's Jewel with a reminder that this series deals with sexual assault. And here's your quick recap. In the last episode, you heard about Jimmy Ray Bromgard's exoneration. So then I'm in the hole and I was in there for like three days and uh, the captain pulled me up for a phone call and it was Peter calling me to tell me that the reason they locked me up was because the DNA test came back and I was innocent. He walked out a free man in 2002 after DNA proved he didn't rape Linda Glantz when she was eight. And you learn a lot more about Linda, who's in her 40s now. She lives with her husband, Patty, after they decided to leave their jobs in Yellowstone Park and move a bit north. We'd always said, we're going to move to Livingston if we ever leave the park. That's where we want to go. We love Livingston. We love our community there. That's already like preset for you when you move here. Um, so we always knew Livingston was the place. We left off with Megan Ashton being very excited. So let me tell you who she is. In the early 2000s, she was a work-study student, an intern at the Montana Crime Lab, when things got pretty intense there regarding evidence in this case. So I just, what I recall is all of the hubbub isn't really the right word. I'm trying to think of all of the sort of craziness regarding Bromgard's exoneration. It seemed like the DNA analysts had done something wrong instead of that they had provided, you know, to get an innocent person out of jail. And it was really tense back there. That's because no one likes to be wrong, including, maybe especially, cops, prosecutors, and the attorney general. But the lab results proved they were wrong, that the DNA wasn't Jim Bromgard's. Fast forward a few years after that, actually 12 years after the exoneration. Megan Ashton is still at the crime lab, only now she's an administrator in charge of the state's criminal DNA database. It's called CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. It's the blanket term for linked national databases that contain biological information on people charged with crimes. On a typical morning in 2014, Megan parks outside the lab, it's in this nondescript office park a few blocks from Target in Missoula, where I live. And she goes in to start her day. So I search the database twice a week, I believe. And it's automatic. I have it set to automatically search. And so I come in in the morning and I look to see if there's any new matches that I need to follow up on. And that particular one, I remember distinctly thinking, oh my God, wow, I, it... That hit. That case hit. It's episode four of An Absurd Result, The Hit. I'm Jewel Banville, a journalist in Montana, and I want you to imagine being Megan Ashton, finding this DNA match on a spreadsheet. I mean, she hadn't memorized the long ID number on the case originally connected to Jimmy Bromgard, but she knew it well enough. Because it was so old, had a very different number that it's assigned to in the database. And so having been familiar with the whole case, I mean, it, it's one of those cases where you hope that at some point you get a resolution for that case. You know, I mean, what we do, we are unbiased, but that's an old case. It had a big impact on the lab. It had a big you know, impact on a lot of things and having it remain unresolved um, was hard, I guess. Megan is a scientist and she's also a mom. She has a son in middle school. Her husband's a lawyer. 
And she never forgot what this case was really about, the brutal rape of a little girl in Billings. She knew the DNA that freed Jimmy, the genetic profile of the person who did this, that was still in the system, routinely checked by the process she now oversees. So this was a moment for her, for her career, when that particular number came up another color. And new matches are in red to say, hey, you need to look at me and see if this is a a real match. And so I think I probably went running around the laboratory (laughs) saying, we got to hit, we got to hit, we got to hit. We got to hit. I've done that a couple of times. On a, there's a couple of cases where that's happened, but this is definitely one of those. Yeah, for sure. It's another one of those lucky blips I told you about in this case, like evidence from 1987 in a box that could have been destroyed or lost and wasn't. Like a rich guy in Rhode Island who comes forward and pays to have it tested. Like a new profile in the criminal DNA database showing up as a match 12 years after Jimmy Bromgard walks out of prison. And it's not just a pretty clear match. Um, one in two quadrillion, six hundred and three trillion Caucasians. So quadrillion um, is a lot. It's more than the population of the Earth. We're sitting in a conference room at the crime lab, and my eyes bug out when she says that last bit. Later, I realize she's dumbing it down for me. It's actually hundreds of thousands times more than the population of the Earth. It's exact as science gets. So here's what happens next. Megan Ashton and her colleagues confirm the hit by rerunning the sample. Only if they get the same exact results do they keep going. And it comes in with the information card with the offender's name, date of birth, social security number, hopefully. They don't always provide it. And a fingerprint on the card. She also checks the criminal history. And I have to make sure that they were indeed convicted of an offense that qualifies to go into our database before I can release the name. So that's one step. It checks out, so she writes a letter to the Billings Police Department identifying a person you'll hear a lot about, Ronald Dwight Tipton. His profile entered the database after an arrest on a marijuana charge in White Sulphur Springs, Montana. There was a raid at a trailer he shared with his brother. The sheriff for Marr County, John Lopp, knows the Tiptons. White Sulphur Springs, the county seat is a pretty small place. Total population hovers around 1,000. And John Lopp's been working in the sheriff's office there since 1997. He pretty much knows everybody. So this all started for Ron Tipton with an anonymous tip to the sheriff's office that prompted deputies to take a closer look. And that's kind of when the medical marijuana was getting to be a huge thing and nobody knew all the rules. And so the deputies noticed at night, it looked like grow lights through the windows. So that's when we got a hold of the Missouri River Drug Task Force. They also roped in Northwestern Energy. And had them look at their bill to see what their usage was. Because if, if they have a grow operation, their usage is going to skyrocket. And it did. It was way above abnormal, I guess. So Sheriff Lopp and this task force of federal, state, and local cops raid the trailer in spring 2011. The report says they found more than 70 plants. Ron Tipton later pleaded guilty to possession of dangerous drugs, a felony. In the list of requirements after his plea were 12 words. All defendants convicted of a felony offense shall submit to DNA testing. Eventually, Tipton sat down with two detectives from Billings. One of them is Ken Paharic. He was confronted with everything we had, 
the DNA. Um, we talked about that. We, we just really talked about that. The interview happened in White Sulphur Springs. So that's about two and a half hours from Billings, and it's about an hour north of Livingston. Livingston, of course, is where Linda Glantz lives with her husband Patty and their pets. In a state that could fit the country of Japan inside of it, an hour or so, that's not very far. And that's what separated the woman assaulted in her bed when she was eight, and the man now identified by his DNA almost 30 years later. She didn't know any of that before detectives sat down with Tipton in the Mara County Courthouse. Uh, kind of up on the up on the landing, like second floor, in a private room. And it was Keith and I. Very consensual interview. There was no issues. There was no anything. Detective Ken Paharic was two years out of high school in 1987. That makes him about two years older than Jim Bromgard. Ken grew up in Montana, and he didn't know vaguely about the case. He knew about Bromgard's wrongful conviction. But he didn't need to dig in until his boss told him he'd join another detective, Keith Buxbaum, on the drive to White Sulphur. Yeah, I got to read the, the file. I looked at some old reports and kind of went through the file A to Z. You know what I mean? So I knew, here's what was going on here. Here's what they did. Here, that kind of thing. And what were your thoughts on this case? Uh, well, while I was doing that, this is where this, this, this drawing comes back. Um, just, and what I kind of talked about it is, man, you had this little girl do all this thing, man, that was tough on her and wow, I don't know. But then the, I looked at the drawing, pulled it, we got a, a booking photo <laughs> and I understand that, that, you know, there's some similarities between a lot of people. Maybe there's some similarities with Bromgard and the photo. I can, I can appreciate that. But I can also appreciate the fact that when I pulled that photo of Tipton and compared it with the, the, the police rendering, wow, I, I, was, uh, I was taken aback. And then you couple that, just that piece with the DNA, well, I, I, I like, we got a, we got a serious, uh, this is the guy. A lot of what I know about what Tipton said about this crime is from this interview. Yellowstone County would not release a recording of it, but I do have the transcript, and I shared it with Ken at his dining room table. He retired from the Billings Police Department in 2019, and now he works as a security officer at the federal courthouse downtown. We talked on his day off, and probably pretty obvious at this point, but this isn't super suitable for kids. Right here? You want me to read it out loud? Yeah, would that be okay? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I said, uh, she's an eight-year-old little girl, or she was. She was an eight-year-old little girl. Ronald, I mean, and I have been doing this for a combined probably 50 years, which meaning that's me and Detective Bucksbaum. She's eight years old. She was eight years old when she got into the house. You sexually assaulted her. I mean, you know that we're not pulling your name out of a hat. We're not making this up. And you know that DNA doesn't lie and it's on her panties from 1987. So you couldn't be more clear about Very that clear, events. very clear. Yeah, which I know that must be hard to yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you saw what his answer was. What is it? Huh. Yeah. And I asked him, so what can you tell me about that? And his response was, I don't know nothing about that. 
Tipton said that a few times. I don't know nothing about that. The transcript shows Detective Beharic especially pushed Tipton. He was the one who kept trying for a confession, telling Tipton he could help himself out if he admitted what he did, that trouble was coming for him, and he'd stop his freefall if he told them what happened. But Tipton was consistent. He denied knowledge of the crime. But something important did happen in that room, and it's more visceral than it appears in the transcript. I asked Ken about it. I confronted him face-to-face. I mean, like, we're sitting here and uh, made eye contact with him. Very, I mean, hard-on eye contact with him. And no question in my mind, 100%, that he was going to emotionally lose it and cry and let it go. Um, you know, the whole thing, the, 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 the eyes the tearing up, the eyes reddening, the quivering, the nervous, everything was there. I mean, I'm 54 years old. I know what it looks like when somebody's getting ready to cry. And he was getting ready to cry. Um, I thought he was going to do that. And he caught himself and composed himself. And he didn't. And here's the thing. He's not going to admit it. I can describe that all I want to whoever I want. It wasn't on video. It was recorded. I put it on paper. And apparently, which was never brought up during the interview, ever, I, did I recall, apparently he's on some, he, he has an illness or something, and he's on medication. I view that as crap. When Ken Paharek saw Ronald Tipton about to tear up, the detective said to him, I can see you're about to cry. And Tipton denied that too. Ken told him, I can see it in your eyes. I know you did this. Ken pulled out the sketch, the one that pointed police to Jimmy years ago. And Ken told Tipton he thought it looked like him. He pulled out Tipton's booking photo for comparison. The mugshot was from a 1988 arrest in Yellowstone County, when Tipton was involved with the theft of saddles. Tipton remembered stealing those saddles. It happened a year after the crime in question. Look at the similarities, Ken said about the mugshot. Tipton's response, I guess I was a bad guy then. And that's as close as detectives came that day. That wasn't a huge surprise to Ken. The the suspects like to, uh, and this is one of our things that we use up in uh, detectives, they like to circle talk. They'll circle talk around everything, but they won't actually give you the facts. He refused to admit to anything, which initially people do that. They refuse, deny, 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 deny. Then made me take a step a little later, add a little bit more in, still deny. Eventually, they tell the truth. Eventually. That's kind of how it works. That's my experience. Shows that. Um, He denied, 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 denied. And that was pretty much it. He denied he did this. But this interview did give the police some background they needed, and it did give them a lead. Ron Tipton was 26 in March 1987 when Linda was raped. He told detectives he was around 10 when his family moved to Billings. He has six brothers, and he lists them during the interview. Rick, Willie, Bob, Ralph, Keith, and Ken. Ron's between Ralph and Keith. He's the third youngest. In the time period detectives need to know about, Ron had a girlfriend he later married and divorced. Kim Stone is her name. A booking sheet lists her name tattooed to his forearm. So after talking to Ron, detectives find Kim and line her up for an interview, too. She tells them, yes, 
they were in Billings in March 1987, possibly staying with one of Ron's brothers. Kim says they left town in April of that year. Then they moved around a lot to Yakima and Washington, to Jackson Hole in Wyoming, to Las Vegas. And here I have a little bit of help explaining Tipton's timeline. A newspaper reporter from the Billings Gazette, Phoebe Tollefson, did really good work piecing together the paper trail. We talked about it on Zoom. Well, I just, I think I just remember getting curious what he had done with his life, basically. Um, when Bromgard got out and he was exonerated, that was big news and we all found out and that made the headlines and stuff. But I just got really curious, like what this other guy had been up to and, you know, here he has all this freedom and, you know, opportunities to take his life where he wants it. And I was just like, what did he do? You know, mainly what we know about Ron Tipton, we know through public records and court documents. We know he worked ranch jobs and restaurant jobs. And we know he married Kim about four months after the rape because a Wyoming paper prints info about marriage licenses. It popped up in Jackson Hole News and Guide. They had this marriage license. They were listed on the marriage licenses. Um, and then I remember in one of his court documents, too, somewhere it mentioned kind of like a restaurant gig that summer in Jackson. It's like, okay, well, that lines up, too. I remember calling the restaurant and I was like, hey, any chance there's somebody here who used to work here in the 80s and remembers a very short time employee? And obviously that didn't pan out. A different restaurant job, this one at the Burger Ranch in Yakima, Washington, leads to another court document. This one's dated about a month after the marriage license. Ronald Tipton admits, in writing, he was looking at women through a hole in the bathroom. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. I don't remember what the um, state's exhibit list said as far as what the conviction was for, but I remember getting the charging documents and it said the little just short narrative was like, I think it was in his change of plea he admitted to. He said, I crawled in the crawl space of a bathroom and poked a hole in the ceiling. He does community service for that. The charges on it, malicious mischief and criminal trespassing are misdemeanors. Other arrests follow. One for theft in Arizona the same year as the rape. The following year, 1988, he has to go to Nevada to face an old charge for possession with intent to distribute marijuana. He ends up serving five months in prison there. That year, he and Kim come home to Montana. That's where Tipton gets caught and later admits to detectives he stole saddles from an equestrian school. In that interview in the courthouse, he says he remembers that crime, but doesn't remember anything about the rape of an eight-year-old the year before. In one of her Gazette stories, Phoebe lines up Tipton's timeline with Jim Bromgard's. The saddle theft put Tipton in the state prison in Deer Lodge, and that's where Jimmy was serving time for sexual assault without consent. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, whoa, he was in lockup at the exact same time the guy who was wrongfully convicted for what he is now accused of doing. And they were in the same facility, and what was that like? But they didn't meet there. Jim was in with the long-timers. Tipton was only in two months before going to a pre-release center. So here's the deal. As far as Tipton's rap sheet, it helps cops figure out a few facts about where he was and when. But the charges are all relatively minor. He had that incident in the bathroom at the Burger Ranch. But there's truly nothing in his criminal history that matches up with what happened on Virginia Lane in Billings. For sure, I know I need to talk to Ron Tipton and hear what he has to say about all of it. Phoebe wanted that interview too. Yes, I did knock on Tipton's door. Um, 
I was super nervous because it can be nerve wracking confronting somebody, you know, over this type of thing. And I almost felt like I had to go into his porch to knock on his doors. Something where I felt like I was like already trespassing or something. Anyway, I knocked on his door and he came out and he looked just like he did in the photo. Kind of a small guy, that long ponytail, those big eyes. And he just kind of looked, I don't know, maybe a little alert or fearful or who the heck's knocking on my door and I just handed him a card and told him who I was and why I was there and I just remember him saying pretty quickly nope don't want to say anything about that and just kind of ducked back inside. Before it was my turn to knock on Ron Tipton's door I wrote him a letter. He doesn't have a listed phone. I told him who I was and that I was working on the story and I hoped to listen to whatever he had to say. But he didn't get that letter. Yeah, which we, was his mental disability, we censor his mail. This is Amanda Tilson. She read my letter. She lives with and takes care of Ronald. She calls him Ronnie. Her longtime boyfriend is Ken Tipton, Ron's youngest brother. And Kenny and I are his, lost the word. Guardians? Kind of, yeah, uh, um, something attorney. Oh, power of attorney? Power of attorney, yeah. And stuff, so we make all the decisions for Ronnie and everything, because, well, I took over after Ken went away, because he's, since 2012, Ken's taken care of Ronnie. And so, now I do. I think it's important that you know more about Ken Tipton. He lives here, too. But when I visited, he was in prison. In 2019, a jury convicted him on two counts of sexual abuse of children and indecent exposure to a minor, all felonies. Charging documents detail incidents in his home, in a vehicle, and in a camper at a nearby lake. Ken Tipton's lawyers appealed that conviction, and after months of back and forth, the Montana Supreme Court very recently, November 2021, decided the state owes Ken a new trial. The details on why are complicated. Basically, the court said Ken's lawyer didn't do her job when she allowed prosecutors to combine two separate incidents, one in 2015 and another in 2016, and apply to both a harsher law passed in the time between these two incidents. The court also found the state applied the wrong law to two counts. So based on that, Tipton's new lawyers pushed for a full acquittal. But the state's highest court stopped short of that. And now prosecutors are getting ready to start the trial process again. In the meantime, Ken's no longer in custody. Separately, Ken was charged in Montana for failing to register as a sex offender. That goes back to a conviction for molesting a child in Washington state in 1991. In documents filed before Ken's trial, that victim is identified as nine years old. So, back to Amanda Tilson, who answered the door at their shared trailer. In Ken's trial, she said she started dating Ken in 2014 and moved in with him and Ron in March 2015. She wasn't going to let me interview Ron, but she stood there and talked to me, and she knew I was recording. So I do want you to know what she said. So we're just, we're tired of it. We want to live in peace. That's all. It's okay if I use that part of it. We're tired of it. We want to live in peace. Yeah. Yes, that is fine. Bobby. You can use it. That's perfectly Bobby. fine. Um, he was not proven guilty. Bobby. You can use that. Bobby. He's innocent until proven Bobby. guilty. You can use that. Bobby. 
He was never proven guilty, so he is still innocent, and people need to stop harassing him about it. You heard there the little girl Amanda held on her hip, Amanda and Ken's daughter. She was two at the time. This is her house also. She lives with her mom and her Uncle Ronnie. Yeah, she's a lovely little two-year-old, loves her Uncle Ronnie to death. I do know Ron Tipton talked to the cops about having a mental breakdown and leaving a ranch job because of that. And I know about another instance when he showed up at the sheriff's office. Here's John Lopp again. Uh, September of 2012, he came in and needed mental health help. He was in crisis. This was after the raid on the trailer, but before detectives interviewed him about the rape. On this day in 2012, the sheriff saw somebody who needed help. He ended up talking to Ron for over an hour while he arranged for a deputy to take him for a mental health evaluation in Helena. Yeah, so if somebody's in crisis, I mean, we're the first ones to deal with them. And our hospital isn't equipped to deal with them. So we end up transporting them over to Helena to see if they can get help. It doesn't always happen, but the mental health system in Montana is pretty messed up. Ron that day was manic. Sheriff Lapp didn't get worked up or feel the need to restrain him. Because sometimes you get people like that that don't listen to you and they get violent. Where he was very compliant. Every time I told him, sit down, took his shirt off, I told him, put it on, he put it back on. But just that nonstop talking. And some people think they can't interrupt him, you know, just let him talk. And with him, you notice whenever I say something, he'd answer me but then just keep right on going and he would do whatever I asked, so. It's, he, was, he didn't come at you? No. So it sounded like a scuffle there. No, he was just moving stuff around. He would just sit up, stand down, you know, stand up, sit down. So back at Ron's trailer with Amanda, his mental health is the reason she gives me for not telling Ron about my letter or that I'm standing outside wanting to talk to him. Because um, you guys are fucking with his mental disability horribly. And we are tired of journalists popping up and harassing him for stories. I don't want to harass anyone. Well, no, you're the first time you've come here, but you're not the first journalist, period. And his mental health does not stand up to him. And we just, like I said, we just want to live in peace. That's it. We don't want to be bugged anymore about it. We want to live in peace. Um, We got screwed just as much as she did because he's innocent in it all, and... When she said that, that they'd been screwed over as much as she was, she, meaning the victim Linda, well, I brought up the DNA. DNA evidence that has had four people match it besides him. A no, DNA he's evidence... The only, he's the only match on DNA. I have all the other court paperwork from yeah. the original case. But that yeah. wasn't a DNA. He... he The reason why he was let out of prison is because he didn't match the DNA. Yeah, DNA evidence that appeared after disappearing and can't be proven beyond a shadow of doubt that it wasn't tampered with. Yeah, no, that's not legitimate DNA evidence. No, not in the least, because I have all the proof and paperwork that he wasn't even in the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but that side's not allowed to be seen. Yes. And no one wants to listen to it, so... That is why I knocked on your door, because... Well, this is his door, so... (laughs) This is Ronald's house. This is his home. This is his sanctuary. 
this is the only place he has left to go in this entire town that he is safe from people. Do you think it would help for him to be able to tell his side of things? No, you're going to send him into a bipolar mental breakdown again. Okay. That's all there is to it. He's borderline on it ever yeah. since it started. And he's holding it together pretty dang good. I got the sense Amanda is the one holding it together. She talked about what happened with this family, the one she chose to be a part of when she started dating Ken. I mean, this is split. Ron first just split the family, followed up by Ken. Split the family even more. So we're trying hard to build our family back up because, you know, these guys are the bad people and stuff. So, you know, the whole family gets treated that way. And different parts of the family are attacking different parts of the family. And we've worked hard over the last couple of years to try to rebuild this family that we have. And when this airs, it's just going to tear us all back apart again. So we're going to have to start all over again. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean to you. No, I, you're not I'm just... You're not, I, I, <laughs> I'm very frustrated with the situation, the system, everything. When I left, I could see I upset her. And honestly, going back to what Phoebe said, this part is hard knocking on doors like this. I mean, none of this is Amanda's fault. Now her partner is in prison and she's taking care of their child, plus his brother, and waiting for what's gonna happen next. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I sorry. appreciate it. I'm sorry, sweetie. <laughs> Are you okay, honey? Yeah. Okay. You know. Well, I hope to talk to you again, and I hope you talking to me Sweet. Now. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I did follow up with Amanda on Facebook Messenger, and she said clearly she didn't want to hear from me again. She had a friend send me a note, too. I sent a letter to Ken at the Crossroads Correctional Facility, and it came back to me unopened. In the next episode, you'll hear from Linda about what it was like to hear Ron Tipton's name that first time. Because once I, once I found out that we knew who he was, I called my whole family. Um, and then I started checking the prisoner rolls in Yellowstone County. But she didn't find his name anywhere in connection to an arrest. Find out why on the next episode. An Absurd Result is a production of Mopac Audio. It's reported and written by me, Joel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzeridin and Jonathan Beal. Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Bomarito. We had production help from Shanna McGarvey and Chris Moss. Special thanks to Kaya Peterson and Bert Hurwitz. For more, visit absurdresultpodcast.com and follow us on social media at Absurd Result Pod. Thanks for listening.